Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. Today is Tuesday, March the 8th. And joining me today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? I mean, I'm doing better than the rest of the world, it seems like. So I guess I'm all right. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we don't have a lot of good news. I, I will admit today to uh, looking at all the news that we're going to talk about today and thinking to myself, so where are we at on that whole Trump being reinstated thing? Like Democrats stole the election from him, right? We should, yeah, we we should let, give it back. That's right. Let's just give it back. You, you Make know, all we, these we things his problem. <laughs> um, so on today's show, we're going to talk about the crises around the world, the crises at home, um, and how it's going to impact politics as we head rapidly towards the midterm elections. Um, the, the top story for us today is how high gas prices are in Georgia and across the country. And this is uh, in part a direct response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, which has put the international community in a, in a war with Russia on energy production. And that is being felt in gas prices here at home. That's also being felt in our politics here at home. So we're going to talk about how that is playing out. Um, then we're going to also talk about the the state of David Perdue's campaign. And I'll admit when- David Perdue's running for governor? He's running for governor. Really? Al- allegedly. Um, it's not going great. I remember being very concerned when he jumped into this race that this was going to be this like bloody all out brawl that was like going to put our democracy in the balance and hadn't quite panned out that way. But we'll talk about his uh, his floundering efforts. And then we'll check in on things going on in the legislature and in qualifying. It's a busy week at the legislature. There is both action on the legislative front, a uh, new income tax cut proposal that is backed by Speaker Ralston that is likely to be uh, passed by the legislature this year, along with some other legislation that we'll discuss. And then qualifying is adding to the kind of circus-like atmosphere at the Capitol this week. Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp both qualified today in their race for governor. I think as of this recording, Tuesday so evening- Stacey Abrams is running for governor? She is. <laughs> oh, I, I heard. Um, yeah, as of this recording, I don't think David Perdue is qualified, although I'm, I'm sure that he will. I mean, then some surprises in, in qualifying, including a very crowded Democratic race for lieutenant governor. But let's start here, Luke, with uh, how damn high the gas prices are. I guess first we should say, you know, this is the first time that we've recorded since Russia invaded Ukraine. Both Georgia senators, Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff, have condemned Russia's invasion. And, and I think off the top, it is worth noting here that Russia is doing a, a very bad thing here that is going to lead to a lot of suffering, both in Ukraine, which is bearing the brunt of Russia's force, and it's also going to lead to a lot of economic suffering in, in Russia. So, you know, most of our focus is, is what that means for politics domestically here in the U.S., but I think it is worth keeping in mind at the top that uh, very shitty situation over there. Yeah, as an amateur historian, I will say that Ukraine is the you know worst worst geographical area on earth for the past hundred years, uh, and leave it at that because they, they've they've been through a lot. And like you said, that as much as I would enjoy pontificating on this topic, I am not an expert. I'd just be regurgitating things I've heard from experts. So why why do that? So you know, let's focus on uh, what we know best, which is Georgia, and not the one over there. The one here, right here. The one here. And in the one here, uh, we are uh, paying a lot for gas now. As is everyone. Uh, I uh, ran to fill my car up today on the news that Joe Biden announced that he would ban 
imports of Russian oil and gas, which means prices are going to jump again, but, but they have already jumped pretty significantly to the highest levels since 2008. Um, my, my question to you, Kyle, though, is like, why is Joe Biden doing this? Since Joe Biden does personally set the gas price in America every day. He does. I mean, he's yeah. fully responsible. I mean, I, you know, Republicans, I don't know that they've said this yet, but they're about two days from saying that Joe Biden needs to go out there and do some fracking in these wells himself. I um, mean, while that would be a good photo op, we are going to talk here about some of Joe Biden's limited options. But, but this does, you know, Republicans in Georgia and Republicans across the country have, have really jumped on the administration's response here and the, the result of uh, this international crisis precipitating high gas prices. Governor Kemp said that he was going to work with the legislature to quickly pass and him quickly sign legislation that would suspend the state's gas tax. Uh, he said that it was a uh, colossal failure of leadership in Washington that was forcing him to act. And Republicans generally have been critical of the Biden administration for, in their view, not acting quickly enough to approve, basically to approve leasing to allow for drilling, more drilling that they say would lead to additional oil production. So I think it is really important to point out the fact that they're talking about publicly owned land because it's not like Joe Biden has signed some executive order personally stopping every single dr you know oil drilling in America or even a new oil drilling in America. It's it's just on publicly owned land. There's plenty of new you know, oil drilling operations popping up all over the country on privately owned land. It's it, in it just frustrates me this whole narrative because I, you know, I started at the top with a joke saying that Joe Biden personally sets the, the gas price, and it's just, you know, it wasn't true when Bush was president, it wasn't true when Obama was president, it wasn't true when Trump was president. It, it's just the president does not have that much control over this, and you know, they, I feel like Biden is doing as much as he can being out there in front of the American people saying, hey, things are going to be pretty hard on the uh, gas price front for a while. I'm doing what I can with the strategic oil reserves. I think, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, uh, Senator Warnock has called for a federal gas tax freeze as well. Um, yeah, he's on. Leg he's sponsored legislation that would do that. Um, he actually sponsored that legislation before Russia's invasion, in part because this is driven by two things. It's not just driven by the invasion, it's also driven by the increasing demand for oil and gas in this country as we reopen and sort of rejoin our normal lives following the pandemic. Yeah. And so I think Joe Biden and Democrats generally's job here is to not let the Republicans do what they're trying to do now, which is like run outside with their hair on fire. It's like, why are gas prices so high? We're going to have more. And it's like, it's very obvious why it is. It's because Russia is invading Ukraine and uh, Republicans are calling for a bunch of action against that. And frankly, everyone is. I mean, I have not met, uh, I know they're out there, but I have not met a single person in my real life who is pro-Russia right now. And I, I think Joe Biden's responsibility here, even more than doing the little tiny things he can do to adjust the gas price in this country, he needs to be going out there and saying, look, it's going to be hard right now, but if we want to stop Russia, then we need to unite and do these and, and you know, bite this bullet and try to help where we can uh, stopping a totalitarian, authoritarian, whatever ideology you want to call of Vladimir Putin's Russia from getting away with a blatant invasion. And I, I think 
pretending that the gas prices are this bad for any other reason is something that you know Republicans should get laughed out out of at least. And it's just frustrating to me that there seems to be this cognitive dissonance in people because to me it's very obvious <laughs> that you, know, you have a country gig in Vegas and then a couple of days later the gas price shoots up and and people are acting like that's disconnected and it's just frustrating to me. Let me give you the hottest take. You remember Kelly Leffler? Who? We haven't, we haven't forgotten about Kelly Leffler over here. She tweeted today, when we had a president that actually put America first, the average gas price was $2.40 and the world respected our strength. Today, it's $4.17, the highest in US history. Inflation adjusted, that's actually not true. But to me, you know, because Joe Biden has limited options and, and you were pointing to his messaging opportunity here to be going out and sort of providing- I would call it an obligation, not an opportunity, but yes. His, uh, well, <clears throat> the obligation is to sort of go out and call people to sort of bite this bullet in support of doing everything that the West can do economically to push back against Russia all because ultimately the thing that no one will say is that what no one wants, even Republicans, is American military action that might precipitate a, a full-on, a full-blown war with Russia. Like, you know, we have a larger military than Russia. We could end that war very quickly if we wanted to, but the cost of doing so would be so high, potentially sparking a third world war, that that is not an option that's on the table. And for good reason, I, you know, I haven't seen anybody advocating for that, but it puts Joe Biden in a bind and it puts Democrats in a bind because they're now in charge. They're responsible for things. And in the general view in the American public, as it always is on these issues, is like, there's a problem, do something to fix it. And if you didn't do something to fix it, then it's your fault. And we want to hand the keys to somebody else. And to the extent that this, you know, to the extent that this military action in Ukraine drags on because the Ukrainian people seem to be valiantly defending their own land, um, which is a good thing, but it means that this crisis will drag on because it's not as if Vladimir Putin's going to turn, turn around and, and bring his army home in two weeks just because it was a little harder than he expected. That means that this the turmoil in energy markets, the, the sense of turmoil in global affairs is going to continue into this year. And it just so happens that this is a midterm election year. Oh, really? I heard. I heard. And Democrats are going to be viewed as being responsible for these things. So I don't know that I have a question here, except to say- Well, and I, I have a question here. Why are great. so many people running for lieutenant governor <laughs> in this circumstance? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to run for anything right now. Well, let's talk about yeah. people running for things. Because I, I think, you know, like we said, that that's that's where we're uh, a little more qualified. So speaking of qualifying, uh, I should go to hell for that pun. But all right. So let, let's move on to to qualifying here. And it it has come, become kind of a spectacle down at the Capitol to to watch who's coming in to qualify. You know, largely we we know who is going to run in these races this year. Most people have declared there weren't a ton of surprises to the extent that there were any surprises. They actually seem to be coming from the legislature where two leading Republicans, chairman, 
House Appropriations Chairman Terry England and Senate Rules Chairman Jeff Mullis both announced that they are not running for re-election. That you know is is probably going to be a, a somewhat significant loss of experience and leadership in the Republican caucus in, in both the House and the Senate. But the but the most high-profile qualifying uh, events happened today on Tuesday when both Abram and, Abrams and Kemp. Uh, solidified that they are officially running for governor by qualifying. And Abrams really brought back her message from 2018 to this initial moment. She was critical of Governor Kemp for not expanding Medicaid. Um, She said that she would fully and permanently fund education and that everyone was needed to defend voting rights. These issues are not new. We've talked about them a bunch. Luke, we're in a a particularly challenging moment for Democrats. Um, And there's a lot of things that nationally and in politics and in sort of the broader political consciousness are not going well for Democrats. And Abrams clearly sort of came back to leaning on issues that she has built her brand around and that she wants to press in this campaign. What did you think of that opening message at at qualifying from her. Well, I I joked earlier about both Purdue and Abrams asking if they were running for governor because I just do not feel like either one of them are successfully breaking through. And for very different reasons. I think, you know, starting with Abrams, I, I'm frustrated by the fact that in 2022, she's running in 2018. And she's trying to just talk about things she talked about in 2018. And she's not any less right than she was in 2018 about those issues. But I just find it hard to believe that that is the best message for this moment because it does not address COVID, does not address, you know, the, it just doesn't address the moment. And she needs to be out there really taking Kemp to task about how he has led this state through, you know, some of the hardest years in this country's history, because his record is not good. And, you know, tying that back to, hey, here's all these things I were right, I was right about in 2018, I'm still right about them, change, you know, do something different and elect me this time, and then I'll show you how right I am, doesn't feel like the right message in this moment to me. I think this is my frustration both with Abrams and Biden is it just feels like they can't adapt to the circumstances and that they are locked in six months, a year behind where the moment is, you know, it's like Gary Hart always used to say, Washington is always last to get the new, the news. And it seems like that's true for Democrats with their political messaging because they're just not taking by the, by the way, take a shot. If you know who Gary Hart is audience. Yeah. Do you know, Kyle? I know. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but anyway, again, I, I will be fair in that I am not Stacey Abrams. And I'm not running for governor. And maybe I would feel some more constraints if I were. And also we're different people. And so we approach messaging differently. But if I was running for governor right now, like what I would be talking about is how in the face of these giant crises, Kemp did not do anything And I would talk about what I would do in response specifically to COVID-19 and how to build Georgia going forward. And I, you know, again, to, to be fair to her, I'm sure that's, you know, she's like, well, I would do all these things I would have done four years ago and we still need to do them. And that's probably true, but 
no one is going, you know, like Greg Bluesting or any other reporter is not going to be eager to say, well, I'm just going to copy and paste that article I wrote in 2018 and post a new article about these things that Abrams said again. It's just the, the framing to me is, it's so not meeting the moment. It's frustrating to me because it doesn't seem to be meeting voters where they are and trying to help them, you know, get to where they need to be. It's more of rehashing arguments that were not winging arguments four years ago. And that, you know, is, is frustrating to me. I mean, do, do, are you frustrated by this, Kyle, or are you, no, am I, I being too harsh? I don't, it's not that you're being too harsh. I think that, I think what your criticism essentially comes down to is an inability for her to kind of dictate the discussion or dictate the direction of the news as a candidate for a state office when she has no current authority. And when we're in a moment in our politics where largely the president of the United States doesn't have the ability to dictate the direction of things or dictate the direction of the conversation. Um, you know, I mean, I, I particularly feel that way in, in, with respect to what is probably going to be a long drawn out fight over gas prices and the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think somewhat differently on the COVID response, I think she would say in an underfunded education system, that then was put through the ultimate stress test of virtual education and, and addressing COVID-19, that if we had been fully funding our schools for the last two decades, better resourced, better prepared schools might have been able to navigate that moment better. That if we had expanded Medicaid years ago, then fewer people in our state would, be, would not have health insurance. And that when they caught a disease where they needed health care, they would have been able to get it because they would have been able to have insurance. And I think on sort, sort of all the other sort of like criticizing Kemp's COVID response, I think the moment for accountability on Kemp's COVID response and the state's COVID response was actually during the state elections in 2020, the state legislature. And you saw that much of Georgia's political movement seems to have been drawn as a reaction of backlash to Donald Trump. And a lot of that backlash, I think, was wrapped up in people's view that Donald Trump mishandled COVID. And that if Donald Trump had handled COVID, we wouldn't have been in this two-year going on three-year disaster. Um, but that very little of that responsibility ultimately lands on state officials, because Democrats did not make gains in the best electoral environment in this state in decades. They didn't make gains in the state house. They didn't make gains in the state Senate. And of course, Kemp was not up for re-election, and you could maybe argue that a Kemp up for re-election might have driven more people's attention to his response. But I mean, I think it's an open question as to whether or not if Kemp had been up for re-election for governor in 2020, whether or not he ultimately still could have pulled that out. And now I think what you're doing, if you want to be critical of his response generally, you're asking people to look backwards and be like, we should have been more careful. We should have worn our masks more often. We should have had more social solidarity. And we've reached a point in the pandemic where people, I think, have lost a lot of patience for those sorts of responses. And so that's where I'm not really getting the like COVID accountability message because it feels too late for that. 
I don't think you're wrong there. And so I don't know. I get that like, or it doesn't feel like she is offering this definitive alternative to demonstrate how in all of these moments of crisis, her governance style would have put us in a better place. But I think that as a state official, she is either powerless to address things of international affairs and the national economy, or in a COVID perspective, she's just the opportunity to have this argument and is just too late. And so I think maybe her hope is that we will be in a position later in this campaign where these issues become more relevant again, and her general positions are popular, and she feels they are better than Governor Kemp's. And so she wants to have these arguments later in the campaign, particularly on voting rights, particularly on health care. But I think she is in a weaker position now because a lot of these things could have been addressed by Democrats at the federal level. They could have passed the Build Back Better legislation that would have given more Georgians access to health care. They could have passed voting rights protection legislation you know, that the education well, stuff think, is I, kind of a mess. Yeah. And so there's sort of like divided accountability and those contrasts aren't as clean. And so that's why I think it's a hard moment to message. And she just isn't a premier high profile player where just her celebrity and her story is going to command the attention. So it's, it's just a hard environment to have a, a strong message in. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's two places I would contrast what you just said with the first place is that I think my frustration with everything you just said is that it just all feels so backwards looking. Everything is about all these things we have failed to do and not done yet. And things we've been talking about for so long. And it's just, if there was an election that mega keg expansion was going to win in Georgia, it would have been won by now. Jason Carter would be governor and, you know, he would have finished up his second term. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, it hasn't happened, right? It has, yeah, I mean, it, politically, it has not happened. Politically, Republicans made the right bet on that. Yeah. It was a and, terrible, immoral policy decision, but politically they never got the blowback that they deserved. Right. And I kind of feel the same way about all of these issues that they're, aren't going to be any elections won on that issue alone. And the thing that I think helped Joe Biden win in 2020 helped Warnock and Ossoff win in 2021 is that they offered a solution to the crisis of the moment, which was we're going to get out of the worst throes of the pandemic and where people are dying in huge numbers and that it feels like the government isn't doing anything about it. And I cannot articulate right now what Abrams should be saying as governor to get us out of the malaise that I feel like we're in as a country and in, in, in Georgia, but she needs to find that message. <laughs> she needs to find it quick if she wants to be successful. Um, and, you know, to her credit, she's not the only one that's having this problem because I think there's something about Brian Kemp that makes him really hard to run against kind of in the same way that Joe Biden's is your, you know, aw shucks, your nice, you know, un old uncle. Uh, Kemp is, you know, your good old boy, you know, farmer neighbor persona. And it just seems hard to get attacks to stick to him. And I, I, I you know, I, I just, I'm not surprised that both Purdue and Abrams are having trouble. The thing I am surprised is that Abrams seems to have so much trouble to get any news because, 
it was a very big deal when she came to the Capitol. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, from the pictures I've seen, I wasn't there, but from the pictures I've seen and from what I've heard, everyone was freaking out. Oh, it's Stacey Abrams. And, you know, people were excited that she was there, but because she is a national figure. I mean, she has a much higher profile than Brian Kemp. I guarantee you, if you show, you know, everyone in America, a picture of Stacey Abrams and a picture of Brian Kemp, far more people would recognize Stacey Abrams. But also, Kemp. I mean, but that's also not, the press coverage that's going to be beneficial to her. I mean, it, is it, it, it is mean, a Trump it, only had negative press coverage and he won the presidency. So no, I'm, I mean, I'm any saying press for, coverage is good. I think in this environment, I'm saying for the audience, like people who get, ex- we're talking about qualifying, but people who get excited about qualifying and who sort of observe the circus atmosphere of qualifying are the people who are in the Capitol, the lawmakers and the state press corps. And, and I love the state press corps. And, and I think that, this moment at the Capitol is probably very fun, but I think very few people around the state will like notice that it's qualifying week. Oh, I agree. But I, I'm my, my point is that as far as politicians go, Abrams is one of the more well-known ones. And that when she spoke, people listened more, I feel like before she was running than after she was running. I feel like it's it's been harder for her to make news as Stacey Abrams candidate for governor than it was Stacey Abrams, you know, leader of Fair Fight. Well, because, you know, the most important issue nationally for a couple of months was the debate over voting rights. And Republicans invited that debate when they passed voting restrictions in the state. And then Democrats had that moment to capitalize on and pass federal voting rights legislation that would have been pushed back to what Republicans are doing at the state level. And they failed to do that. And it fizzled out. And Stacey Abrams was kind of the, the most visible proponent of that issue. And now that issue has faded to the background, like a lot of things because of all the other things going on in the world. And so I think, you know, I mean, I agree that like, it would probably behoove her campaign to try to get more attention and to try to drive a narrative that is aimed at the solutions that she is offering and contrast those with what she would say are Governor Kemp's failures. But like, she just can't command that the media do that. And so, I mean, you hear this a lot on like Pod Save America and that like the the answer to that is like, digital advertising, not asking the news to be your messenger, not using the media as like, as your messenger, but doing digital advertising. And I think that the one thing that is probably forthcoming, you know, because Raphael Warnock started some of this too, is starting ads using the massive amount of money that she's going to be able to raise. And then he's going to be able to raise and that Democrats are going to be able to raise generally and putting all of that into advertising to try to get your message out there and define yourself before they get defined by the Republicans. The hard part is like people, what people are feeling about Democrats is not necessarily going to be consistent with the ads that Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock are putting out there, but the criticisms of Democrats from Republicans, I think are going to be very relevant and very felt by people generally because things are not going great. And so I think that's sort of like the root of, the problem there. Yeah. And now I'm depressed about this. So I'm going to, I'm going to force a transition. <laughs> Speaking of things that aren't going great, David Perdue's campaign. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about that. Yeah. So 
as I as I said in the open, like I was worried that this was going to be this knockdown drag out fight where there was real question among the Republican electorate whether the real true biggest difference between the two, David Perdue and Brian Kemp, was that Brian Kemp did not uh, overturn the election results in Georgia for Donald Trump. And that argument seems to have gone completely by the wayside. It doesn't seem to have motivated a big segment of uh, Republican primary voters. And so instead, you've seen David Perdue sort of embrace the fringe elements of the Republican primary vote, which I think he believes gives him his only fighting chance at actually making it a real race with Governor Kemp. And so uh, he spoke at a rally with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been under intense criticism because before she spoke at this Second Amendment rally with David Perdue and also Jody Heiss, uh, congressman, but now candidate for Secretary of State, Greene also spoke at a white supremacist pro-Russia invasion, pro-Putin rally in Orlando as, as a part of her, or I guess at, at near the same time as her appearance at, at CPAC in Orlando. And it was notable that Purdue still showed up to that event because even Herschel Walker, who entered this race as the candidate with Trump's backing, who has said that uh, he is not supporting either Republican Brian Kemp or David Perdue for governor, and who maybe I think when he entered this race was initially also maybe aiming at kind of the fringe or the Trump base of the Republican primary vote. Even Herschel Walker is sort of shifting himself, although he's not backing Brian Kemp, he's sort of shifting himself in a Brian Kemp type direction. And so David Perdue spoke at this rally. He said, something about, you know, Washington and the liberal media is not going to cancel us Georgia conservatives and all that. But the other thing that David Perdue has done recently that I think demonstrates most the desperation of his campaign is he has opposed the deal that the state would give tax incentives, economic development incentives to Rivian, which is a uh, manufacturer of electric cars, electric trucks and SUVs, would give state incentives to Rivian to come and build a massive manufacturing facility in a town east of Atlanta called Rutledge. This is over in this sort of social circle Covington-ish area. And there, Purdue has said that he would oppose this deal both because he doesn't feel that there was enough local buy-in from people. And there is some sort of grassroots local opposition to this. But anytime you have a big economic development project, there is you know, some, some opposition from people who, who don't want that in their backyard. But also, of all things, David Perdue, who became a senator of this state largely on his story as a Fortune 500 CEO, has been critical of the state giving tax incentives to a company to lure them to Georgia and is willing to piss away 7,500 Georgia jobs in opposition to these tax incentives when this is the exact kind of economic development stuff that he made a career on are you suggesting a candidate for office might be hypocritical? Yes, but this is. <laughs> Thank you, Siri. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. But this type of hypocritical activity from David Perdue is like the peak of it. Because, you know, in any other situation, if it was Governor David Perdue 
he would have inked that deal. And David Perdue knows that he would have inked that deal. Yeah, well, I think this highlights just how badly this campaign is going for him because he's desperately trying to find anything he can attack Kemp on. And this is really the only big thing Kemp has done lately that he has some ideological angle that he could go after. And it's just been strange because I, I've said this uh, before, but I immediately, as soon as Purdue announced and I saw his announcement video, I knew that this campaign was going to go like this basically because I thought the angle that Purdue had on Kemp was, hey, you like all the things Kemp's doing. I'm better at it than he is. And also I, you know, did the election stuff. I, I would have done the election stuff. You would have wanted Trump supporters. And I thought that would have been a interesting uh, angle for Purdue to pursue, but he instead has just gone full wacko and full crazy guy campaign. And that's just a bad fit for him. It does not fit him. And he didn't do this nearly as much in 2020 as Kelly Loeffler did. And he was campaigning much more as his normal David Perdue self, you know, and it, it, it I fit. don't even agree with that. I, I, I mean, he did it. He, I, Loeffler did it more. He still did it some, but it was still more in the vein of things that David Perdue traditionally said and did, I think, primarily because of the fact that Purdue and Trump were pretty good friends and he liked most of the things that Trump were do was doing and he could pretty easily message in sync with him. And he did, you know, visit crazy town <laughs> plenty of times, but it was still it was still based in some governing reality and philosophy that made sense and the problem i think that purdue has is that on policy he would do almost exactly what brian kemp is doing and he just has no angle to attack him with be that's genuine because of that fact that they're both very conservative and uh approach economic policy and all the policy areas that republicans traditionally care about in about the exact same way and so i i think this is very emblematic of that that he has no real thing to attack and so he's just trying to go after the one high profile uh, announcement that kemp has had and this is one thing that um i think ties both back to what we were saying about abrams but also for purdue is that no one has found the jujitsu way of attacking Brian Kemp of going after his strengths. And I don't even know how to articulate what his strengths are besides the fact that he just seems like a nice good old boy guy for a lot of, you know, the center right Republican voters of Georgia who sometimes will consider voting for Democrats. And um, I, I just, I don't see how Purdue can be successful in this race because the one thing that I've noticed really quickly here is that Republican primaries in Georgia really have two modes that I've seen. There is the, this is the heir parent or anointed person that we want to win and everybody better get in line. Or there is the, oh, we don't really have an opinion free for all. Everybody have fun. <laughs> and this race to my big surprise, uh, uh, you know, before Purdue announced, really very quickly became a no Kemp is our guy. We are all behind him and we like Kemp. And I think the factors that I was missing 
before was one, I could, you know, the messaging point, but the other one is, and I think this is really important and people underestimate it is just people like Brian Kemp and they don't like David Perdue. Everything I hear from every Republican commentator, from a bunch of elected officials, from my friends who are Republicans, all of them say the exact same thing to me. I like Brian Kemp personally. I dislike David Perdue personally. And I think that actually in this race has made a very big difference. So I, I'd, I'd, I'd press you again, like, what is that message that gets at Brian, the things that people like about Brian Kemper or gets past those things and casts him in a negative light? Because I think it's different for Democrats than Republicans. Well, right. Um, but I mean, I think in, e- in either instance, I mean, you can take either one if we want to go back to the Democrats, but like, I don't know that there is a message on either side that really is going to stick to him. Do you have one in mind that I mean, I, I, the, the one that I would, I would attack him on is the fact that Brian Kemp's Brian Kemp is very libertarian in the sense that his approach to being governor is stay out of the way. And that like, that is, that is working for (laughs) Right. That's his mentality is that, and and I don't, I don't, and I'm being genuine here. Like, I don't mean this as a like this is not some political calculation by him. I think he genuinely thinks that things are better if I do less and that if the governor is not interfering in anything, then things are going well. This is not a like, oh, I want to stay out of trouble, so I'm not going to do anything. No, I think he ideologically believes that the governor should not do much and that is better. And so I- the one Just to note there, the one glaring exception to that is all of the authority the governor has over different- uh, apparatuses of state government where he has been very aggressive and putting allies and conservatives into Supreme Court seats. Sonny Perdue is going to be the, the Board of Regents uh, chair now. But that, I think, is an exception to the rule. That well, also, I mean, that's just like, that's the constitutional obligation. If there's right. an opening to a Supreme Court seat, you know, Kemp's not going to be like, well, I don't think the governor should do anything, so I'm not going to put anybody there. But, and the, you know, so the, the thing that I I see as the opening there is to attack that role of governor as you know someone who is proactive someone who will use the authority of the governor to help where it's needed because for example expanding medicaid that i mean that but by fully funding education governor can't do that the governor can say, please, nicely, legislature, please do that. The governor can well, submit a budget, but the governor has a lot of inherent constitutional authority to do a lot of things that the, that Brian Kemp is not doing. And there's lots of, you know, power of the pen, executive order type things you could be doing that I think would be a good argument for Abrams, especially it wouldn't be nearly as powerful for Purdue, but that like the, you know, imagine if, everything stays the same except Stacey Abrams is governor. Like she's not going to be passing all of these bills she's talking about through the legislature. Probably. Um, I mean, she is a great deal maker. I give her, you know, but I don't think she's going to pass all these bills, but the thing she is going to have is a pen and pieces of paper that she can write executive order on top and sign them. And so I think that type of thing, she really should do a better job of articulating that no, the role of the governor is to govern and to get and help and get in the weeds and use the apparatus of the state to make things better, not just avoid making things worse. Because that is clearly a place where Brian Kemp is not performing the role of governor in the way that she thinks he should be. And 
I think that's the most obvious place where she could uh, improve things because the only place where I've seen Brian Kemp use his authority as governor is on the mask mandate stuff. And that has not been very popular. And I think the reason why is because it is a strange perversion of the libertarian mindset because it is forcing you know, the government to not give you the option to do something that might be a policy prescription that you'd like to do as local governments, uh, such as, you know, have mass mandates for high population cities where you don't need them and, you know, smaller population counties and cities. Uh, but, you know, that, that I think is that, that big difference for Purdue. It's a lot harder. I'm not, I'm not in that world nearly as much to know the jujitsu that he, he could pull. And, and well, actually, I mean, again, it's what I said, which is the, you like everything Brian Kemp's doing. I can do it better because I'm more competent than he is. And every session's not going to be, uh, you know, a shit show, uh, wondering what's going to happen. And yeah. I was but, well, two, two things real quick on the, on the Purdue thing. And then I want to come back to the Abrams thing, because I think our, spitting in circles on this is actually instructive on the Purdue thing. The thing that has been most amusing to me, but I think also illustrates how Purdue cannot successfully leverage that you like everything Brian's doing. I'll do it better. And I would have stood with Trump strategy is Republicans, particularly backers of governor Kemp have viciously mocked David Perdue for having lost to John Ossoff. And I think you and I probably agree. And, and I, I think we've also mocked I've him. Been, we, I mean, we've mocked him for that. But, but I think, you know, I think we hold John Ossoff in, in somewhat higher esteem. It, it is impressive at what, how old is he? 33, 34. The fact that he became a U.S. senator, the fact that he capitalized on luckily making it into a special election the first special election of the He's Trump 35. administration. Um, and then now, uh, just three years after that, he was elected U.S. Senator. I, yeah, that's actually pretty impressive. Republicans do not find John Ossoff impressive at all. And that, I think, just adds to the withering criticism of David Perdue blowing an absolutely winnable race that handed Democrats the U.S. Senate. And so the, I think he's lost a lot of respect that he may or may not have ever had among Republican primary voters. And, and on top of that, it is somewhat amusing that what you also see is uh, some of the criticisms that Democrats have levied against Purdue in the past, shipping jobs to China, uh, in his, his record of outsourcing that was not costly to him when he won his Senate bid in 2014, I think is somewhat costly to him now because Donald Trump has sort of flipped things and made China an enemy. And so it sort of splits the, the pro-Trump anti-Kemp vote for Kemp to be able to run an ad with Donald Trump's voice in it about shipping jobs to China and then saying, well, David Perdue did that. So I think that's a couple of somewhat savvy things on the part of the Kemp campaign in a, in a tough position that David Perdue finds himself in. To come back to Stacey Abrams, and I know we've done this a lot, but I think what I wanted to point out here is I think it's instructive that we are spinning in circles about what Stacey Abrams can say, because I think that is the core of her problem in getting attention and creating a really clean contrast. Because 
you know, we've watched, we've watched a lot of campaigns. We've watched them hone on, on these same messages. We've watched them fail to gain traction. And really what you can maybe say is the, a couple of the main drivers of improved democratic performance when they've had basically the same message since 2014 is voter registration and backlash to Donald Trump. You don't have Donald Trump on the ballot anymore and you're sort of maxing out where you can get on voter registration. And so, yes, we're in a very close 50-50 state, but if you have the same message, you try to apply it to a bad democratic year where Democrats are not gonna be favored to win elections this year. I think that is sort of the core of your problem. And there, and I, there is no messaging trick that drives you through that barrier. Well, it's not a trick. It's a well thought out message, but I think, I think we should move on. We can leave this for another day. Yeah. Let, let's wrap here with just checking in on some of the, the high profile legislation that's been moving at the Capitol. We talked extensively about all of the education legislation that would limit the teaching of race in schools. Um, that legislation is moving forward, both governor Kemp's parents bill of rights legislation and some legislation that would ban the teaching of divisive concepts. Those bills continue to move forward. There's not a whole bunch of news there, except that Republicans dropped an effort to apply those limits on teaching divisive concepts to college classrooms. So most of this effort is going to focus on K through 12. And it does appear that there is less appetite among Republicans to penalize schools with their QBE funding. Um, because that was dropped from one of the divisive concepts bills. It was never in a different divisive concepts bill. So we'll come back to those as there is more sort of substantive activity, but, but it does appear that those bills in some way will, will move forward in some form and, and we'll come back to them. Maybe the biggest sort of fiscal uh, bill to take a look at here is about a week and a half ago, Speaker Ralston backed a modest tax cut proposal that would establish a 5.25% flat tax in the state. So it would condense the graduated income tax levels that the state currently has and lower the top state tax rate to 5.25%. And it would also increase the standard deduction in the state so that the increase in tax rates, I mean, I, I haven't seen fiscal analysis, but my guess is that the increase in the standard deduction would sort of offset the potential tax increase on people with lower incomes um, because it would be not popular for <laughs> Republicans to back a, a tax cut that is actually a tax increase. So that, that is my guess there. But I think politically what that means is that Ralston has framed this as sort of the responsible way, quote unquote, responsible way to cut taxes in this state and there's a big appetite for doing that on the Republican side. And that stands in contrast to what he says is the irresponsible way to cut taxes, which is the pledges from David Perdue and other statewide Republican candidates to completely eliminate the state income tax, which provides more than half the revenue that the state gets. But even with that quote unquote more responsible tax cut, it's going to mean taking a billion dollars in revenue a year out of the state coffers starting in 2024. And it's and the state is already likely to take $1.6 billion out of this year's uh, revenue to do income tax rebates. Um, 
any thoughts on tax policy? <laughs> I, you know, I'm happy that we're not going for the worst option, which would be eliminating the income tax. I think we have seen a lot of increases in revenues that made me worried that they might go that route. So to the extent that we're going to stick with pretty similar numbers, I mean, it's a billion dollar cut, right? Revenues? Yeah. Billion dollar cut for the uh, long-term permanent tax reduction, tax rate reduction. Right. And so I would rather us keep that money and use it to fund all the things that we've spent most of the show talking about. But if the alternative is getting rid of the income tax, I think that is, you know, uh, positive and, you know, and I'm not a tax expert, but looking at what you and I looked at when we saw that this, you know, proposal was introduced it does seem like this might be a little simpler and raising the standard deduction makes things makes it easier for people to file their taxes on lower income. So, yeah, that's not the worst thing. I mean, you could simplify the tax code by getting rid of the graduated rates without losing a billion dollars in revenue every year. Right. That Cause is, you could, you could have, you could have kept it higher. Yeah. And, and, but I, I think that all in all for a Republican governor, <laughs> this is not the worst thing they could have done. For what it's worth, I'm driving us back. <laughs> and I don't Stacey do, Abrams. I don't want to do it. Let's go back to Stacey Abrams. For what it's worth, the other half of the Stacey Abrams argument is this revenue argument. And Democrats, I think much more weakly because it is difficult for Democrats to vote against tax cuts. But, but the, the thing that is kind of a tough nut to crack from a messaging perspective is that the state needs more revenue to fund priorities that Republicans have not pursued. And to do that, that has to be politically popular in a way that allows you to win elections. And Democrats have made these arguments to their credit that they haven't always voted against every tax cut. But this has never been, at least in, in the last decade, this has never been issue an issue upon which you win elections. And I, you know... That, that pains me. Those are my policy preferences. So that pains me, but that is a reality uh, that is very unfortunate. And then lastly, here on legislation, the, the one of the maybe two big bipartisan pieces of legislation um, to move forward in the House was comprehensive legislation to improve the state's mental health care system. We talked about this before as a priority of Speaker Ralston's, and it got, I think, all but three votes in the House. Um, so this is legislation that seems very likely to get done. It is in that bucket of productive things that I think Speaker Austin probably wishes we talked more about it, focus more on it. But hey, um, it is good. So is a, we're, ha- we're, we're talking about it now. So he gets his little shout out of doing a one good thing. Here at minute 57. Um, but yes, you know, good on them. And then, and then a couple last qualifying notes here. I'm stuffing in this at the end here as I admit that I was wrong, Luke. You were. Carolyn Bordeaux, current congresswoman for Georgia's 7th Congressional District, she qualified to run for re-election in that district, despite the fact that she is now joined by current congresswoman from the 6th, Lucy McBath, who was uh, gerrymandered out of the 6th. I guess she wasn't physically gerrymandered out of the 6th, but she was put in a district she could not win, and so she's going to attempt to take 
Carolyn Bordeaux seat over in the seventh. I had my backwards reasoning that she was gathering up all these Gwinnett County endorsements to uh, have everybody give her a good pat on the back for winning an election, for flipping that seat, and then she was going to bow out. And Cal, you're one of the smartest people I've ever known. That's the dumbest, <laughs> the dumbest analysis you've ever had. Well, but no, you know, sorry. I'm a, I'm a I'm pundit. Just, I'm just saying it. I'm a pundit. We're not always right. No, thank God. Cause that'd be a darker world, I think. And then, uh, everyone's running for Lieutenant governor, Luke, I might run. Uh, yeah. There's still time. I have an it's excellent Tuesday. You can go down the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, Kwanzaa hall, who was briefly a member of Congress. He, uh, held the briefly held the seat formerly held by Congressman John Lewis after his passing, um, Kwanzaa Hall jumps into a very crowded Democratic primary in that race. He joins Charlie Bailey, Eric Allen, Derek Jackson, Renita Shannon, all of whom are running on the Democratic side. The the Republican side of that race is a a little bit more clear uh, contest between Butch Miller and Burt Jones, both out of the state Senate. But Luke, every Democrat's running for lieutenant governor. Uh, yeah, we were so the races. They've cleared the field. We were so worried about attorney general and then <laughs> the clown car. No offense to anyone who's running, but just based on how many people are running, uh, it is the lieutenant governor's race, which you know it's it's not surprising to me, honestly. And the only other surprising person to not run for re-election um, is Commissioner of Labor Mark Butler. Uh, he's the incumbent. He is not going to run. Yeah, he announced that he is not running again. Um, it's for personal reasons. I believe his wife has recurring cancer, so so oh, wishing I... her and them the best. But that basically uh, opens it up for State Senator Bruce Thompson to most likely, I think, be the Republican nominee for that. I mean, there's a few other Democrats on that on that side. We'll see who comes out of that. Yeah, definitely thoughts with Mark Butler's family. This is the first time I'm I'm hearing this, Kyle. So breaking news to me, but that that is um you don't listen to um peach pundits podcast. Yeah, I get I don't. Uh, it's but, been good lately. Yeah, that's that. I'm yeah sorry to hear that, and he's had a rough rough term. So hopefully, uh, yeah, he can focus on that. And I don't blame him in that circumstance for uh, focusing on that. Lastly, here, Luke. Before we go, I, I know you have an update on the maps. I have not paid attention to. Uh, map news lately uh tell us the latest in cartography yeah so the, the latest is that uh nothing will nothing is going to change uh this election cycle because the uh u.s district court uh judge steve jones in a 238 page uh order which i have read a lot of but not all of uh he, he basically has laid out that due to uh, recent Supreme Court rulings that he is not going to grant an injunction for our congressional or state house maps. And so uh, while those cases will uh, proceed, and he is very clear that he has made absolutely no determination about the merits of these cases, but uh, the Alabama maps have actually uh, had an injunction granted and upheld by a three-court uh, appeals panel, uh, and then the Supreme Court stayed that injunction and let those maps go forward. And since our primaries are on the same date as Alabama's, uh, Judge Jones felt like that he had no leeway to granting injunction uh, under those circumstances. And so uh, we got these maps for this cycle, and we'll see what happens uh, going forward. Plus, the Supreme Court doesn't care about political gerrymandering and seems very unlikely to even care about racial gerrymandering anymore. I, so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually go that far because even uh, Clarence Thomas has been very against racial gerrymandering uh, when, when it's uh, done under some of the more obvious circumstances that 
uh, may or may not be here for these maps. It, it, you know, it's a lot of fact finding that has to happen, but uh, I, I, I'm hopeful that racial gerrymandering can survive because there's been some strange coalitions uh, against racial gerrymandering, but yeah, it, it, it could be different. And we just have, we really haven't seen a lot of racial gerrymandering cases before this new court. So, it, and, and by that, you mean you hope that the prospect of the Supreme Court stepping in to stop racial gerrymandering stays alive. Correct. And not the concept of racial gerrymandering. All right. Well, that we uh, covered a lot. Not a lot of great news, but there was a lot of a news. lot of news. A lot of news. Uh, fill up your cars soon because <laughs> it's not going to get any cheaper um buy that tesla if you've had your eyes on it all right with that we are going to leave it there we will be back again soon till next time luke thank you as always for joining the show uh happy to be here but you know uh, are you the- go dogs go dogs we still got that we're still the national that's champions. right we're still the national champs clinging to that until we lose to georgia tech next year goodbye Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.